uh, Randy was kind of affirming the volunteers and staff that do so much around here. And he was saying, you know, even Charlie uh, puts out a bowl for the dogs who come by. And my, my son looks at me and goes, that's for the dogs because they've been washing their faces in it when they get here. They thought it was kind of like t- to prepare themselves to come into God's presence. So anyway, I'm, yeah. And, and I know we already prayed about it. Um, but I'd just like to take a moment because I do recognize that there are people right now who they can't even gather in the places that they normally gather to worship because the flames have either destroyed those structures or are threatening them. Um, There are people whose lives have been turned upside down because of a, a gunman who decided that he wanted to take his internal angst out on others. Um, and we live in a broken world, and we recognize that. And I, on, on a day when we celebrate those who stand in the gap for those who are somewhat powerless, and they put their own lives on the line, I'm grateful for men and women in uniform, whether that uniform is a military uniform or a police uniform or a fire uniform or simply as a first responder. We are grateful for those men and women who put their lives on the line. And so I just want to take another moment because we have people who are fighting fires right now and are, are out roving the streets looking for the trouble that they will run towards rather than run away from. So Father God, we thank you uh, that you have loved us and Jesus. They, you know, Scripture says that greater love has nobody than this to lay down your life for a friend. And we are grateful for those who willingly put their lives on the line every single day to protect us and to allow us the freedom to be able to worship you and to live without fear. And we pray for those men and women right now who are fighting the fires up in Northern California and up along the coast. And we pray for your protection. I pray, Father, that you would dampen the winds so that those fires would not continue to spread. We pray, Father, for those families who have been uh, just absolutely rocked in those communities that have been rocked by the shootings in Thousand Oaks. We pray for your hand upon everybody who's been impacted by that, everybody who has lost somebody, even the family of the gunman, and pray that you would have your hands upon them. And Father, we are grateful that in a world that is broken, where I was just thinking this morning, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, meaningless, meaningless. Everything in this world is meaningless apart from you. And I'm grateful that you alone can bring meaning to the tragedy, that you alone can redeem the brokenness. And I pray that you would be in the midst of all of this. Would you protect them as they put their lives on the line and would you also come behind them to the land that has been scorched and bring new life? and to the lives that have been bruised and beaten and and pierced by bullets of hatred. And would you heal? And we pray that eternal trajectories would be changed from these seeming tragedies and that you would make beauty from the ashes. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Okay. Um, We, if you're just joining us, Hi, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful to be able to gather with you today. And we are in the middle of a, a, a study through the book of Ephesians. And, and just if you have missed or you're joining us in the midst of this conversation, I just want to remind you of what we've already studied because it'll be a foundation to what we're going to be studying today. Uh, in the, it's a, a, a letter that's about six chapters long. And in the first three chapters, Paul, who is writing to Christians living in and around the, uh, the, 
the city of Ephesus, basically is, lays out, here's who you are in Christ. Yes, you may be a sinner. You may have made choices that were contrary to God's heart, but in Christ, that's no longer who you are. You're not identified as a sinner. You were called a saint, which I would term just a saved sinner. That's what a saint is. And although you may have wandered far from the heart of your father, because we are in Christ, we are adopted into his family and we are utterly secure in his love because you didn't do anything to earn his love. You didn't do anything to deserve to be adopted in his family. Therefore, you can't do anything to lose his love. He loves you. That doesn't necessarily mean that you will necessarily grab a hold of it, but he loves you and he is pursuing you. End of story. So you can rest in his love. And although we come from very disparate backgrounds and different walks of life and, and even different political or philosophical views on the world, in Christ, we are all one. We can gather together as a family, irrespective of our disagreements. We're one. We're united in him. That's who we are. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then in chapter four and throughout the rest of this letter, he will now focus on how should we live in light of who we are? Because the truth of the matter is we can't earn our standing. It is by grace we've been saved, but it certainly matters how we respond to that. How we live makes a difference because we are his ambassadors. We're his representatives. We are his kids and how we live reflects upon him. So that's what we're going to be looking at today is how we should live in light of who we already are. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, there's one hopefully in the seat back in front of you. You can grab that. And if you don't own a Bible, that one in your hand is now yours. Uh, it is our gift to you. Unless you grabbed one off the seat next, you know, it was somebody else's, in which case, you know, <laughs> they might be generous. Who knows? We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. A Gentile is simply somebody who's not a Jew. Okay? That's the, 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 anybody who was not Jewish was considered a Gentile. But we'll get back to that in just a moment. So don't live like the Gentiles do anymore, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separate from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and then to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that you may have something to share with those in need. And do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, 
that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave, or just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we're going to stop there. I went a couple of verses over. So if you are on your phones, I apologize that you weren't able to get over there quickly enough. But, but throughout this entire section, Paul juxtaposes how the believers as, as Christ followers should live. And he juxtaposes that with how the world lives, or as he says it, the Gentiles. But keep this in mind. He, God bless you. He is writing to a group of people that are vastly uh, from the Gentile race, meaning they grew up as Gentiles, not as Jews, and they've come to know Jesus Christ, call him their Lord and Savior. Therefore, he's writing to Gentiles saying, hey, don't be like the Gentiles, which would be tantamount to us or me standing up here and saying, hey, don't be like the Americans around you, right? It's not like we stop being Americans simply because we become a Christ follower. Here's what he is saying. Don't live like the world around you. Don't approach life the way that the rest of the world does because it is utterly futile. Down that path is not the kind of life that God intends for you. How exactly does the rest of the world live that that Paul is encouraging these Gentile believers to, to stop kind of following? Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So it's ironic that he says that they're darkened in their understanding because the, the Greco-Roman culture that these Ephesians were living in were, were proud of their enlightenment. They stood on the shoulders of philosophical giants like Plato and Aristotle, and Socrates, and they worshipped their intellect. It, although they, they've seldom worried about salvation in the way that we talk about it, if they ever looked to try to be saved, they did so through their minds to try to overcome their corrupt flesh. They thought, if I can just get enough information, enough knowledge, enough wisdom, I can avoid the brokenness of this world, and I can overcome even my own flesh. And so ironically, in their pseudo-enlightenment, their belief in their intellect eclipsed their understanding that they desperately needed the sun. And so they walked around saying, I'm enlightened, all the while walking in the darkness of their own, their own pride, their own self-dependence, and they completely missed their need for God. And that's what Paul is getting at. And this isn't the only place he talks about this in Scripture. In fact, he spends a lot more time in, Ro- in the first, uh, first chapter of Romans talking about how they've missed the heart of God and in the process they've, they've decided to walk in the darkness. Can we throw that up on the board for just a moment? This is from Romans chapter 1. 
And, and Paul begins, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. And so through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Just look around you. The heavens declare that God is real, that we have a creator. Keep going. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks to him. And so they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. They worshiped created things rather than the creator of those things. So... God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the, instead of the creator himself, who is, a worthy and, who is worthy and eternal of praise. Here's Paul's point, both in Romans chapter 1 and in the letter of Ephesians in this section. The world around them who is confident in their enlightenment, have said, you know what, God? We don't need you. We don't even believe you're there. We think that we are just a product of chance. And we think that we can somehow live the best way. And so instead of worshiping God, they began to worship the things in creation. They began to worship things like the human body, the human intellect, success, accumulation, sexuality. They worshiped things rather than the one who has created everything. And as if that was bad enough, God allowed them to do so. Basically, Paul starts talking about this downward spiral into depravity where they say, you know what? I don't need you, God. I, I know better than what you think I should do. And so they go their own way. And God, who is a gentleman in many ways, will not force himself upon anyone. And so he lets them go. In some ways, hoping that they will realize the emptiness of life lived, allowing the flesh to dictate what they do. And so he lets them go. Because forced worship isn't worship at all. And we see this downward spiral into depravity. And... and, and Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 here, explains what happens when they begin to harden their hearts and follow their own flesh. He says in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. And when he says they're full of greed, he's not just talking about, I want more money. He's talking about the flesh is never satisfied. As they give themselves over to their impulses, it's as if their impulses just continue to grow more and more hungry for more of it. And so they find themselves continuing to want more and more of it. And if any of you who have ever, you don't have to raise your hand here, but anyone who has ever struggled with addiction, you know what Paul's talking about here, don't you? Because it starts off as little. It starts out as 
you know, you're, you're attracted. I, I don't know, I don't care what it is, whether it be food or shopping or pornography or alcohol or drugs or whatever it happens to be. It starts out as something really little. And there's a temptation towards us. And we, we kind of tiptoe over to it and we give ourselves over to it. And at first, we feel it. it, it it's uncomfortable. But, but the more we give ourselves over to it, it's never enough. And, the, and we need more and more and more of it. Let me back up for just a second. Because think about your bodies for just a moment. And I want you to think about the nervous system that you have. A nervous system that is designed to tell you when you are hurting. You touch things and you can sense that you're touching things because you've got nerves. But you also have that to be able to know when you're hurting yourself. So you touch a a warm stove or you touch a scalding cup of coffee and it burns. And your nerves tell your brain, ouch. and And your brain tells your muscles to let go. Because if you don't let go, what will happen? You'll, you'll get burnt. You'll do more damage to yourself. And this is the way that it is supposed to happen. Our nerves, although all of us would like to avoid pain, our nerves are actually there as a blessing to protect us from hurting ourselves. But if we disregard those impulses, if we disregard those nerve signals that says painful, let go, pull away, we will do lasting damage. And what ends up happening is we start to desensitize ourselves it'll become more and more difficult for us to feel the pain. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here as happening to the world as they give themselves over to the things that their hearts yearn for. They start to lose sensitivity. They become calloused. So not only do you stop feeling the discomfort of, oh, this is hurting me, but also... You stop losing the ability to feel the high that you, you got initially. Those of you who, you know, when you first started drinking, that first drink may have gotten you a little bit buzzed. You keep going months and months and months, and it takes several drinks to get you buzzed. And then it takes half a bottle to get you buzzed or whatever it happens to be. And that's, that's true for any type of thing that we give ourselves over to. It slowly stops having the same effect. So we need more and more of the same thing to get the same effect. And in the process, we don't realize that we're damaging ourselves or perhaps damaging our relationships. And even in some ways, damaging our relationship with God because it desensitizes our hearts. Does this make sense? For those of us who have experienced addiction, what Paul is describing is right where we have come out of and in some ways where some of us are right now. And Paul says, don't be like them. Don't live like them. Verse 20, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires that promise us life, but in fact are giving us death to be made new in the attitude of our mind and then to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. As I read this metaphor of putting off the old self and putting on the, putting on the new, <clears throat> I can't help but think about that story of the prodigal son that Jesus taught. Remember that story about the young man who basically thinks he is going to go find life, so he takes his inheritance and he runs off 
and he squanders it. And all of a sudden, one day, he wakes up in a pigsty covered in the muck of his mistakes. And he goes, how have I fallen so far? And he begins this long, shameful walk back home, fully anticipating that his former father is going to disown him, but might possibly, he hopes, allow him to be a servant in the home that he used to call his home. And when his dad sees him, he runs up to his boy and throws his arms around him and starts to celebrate. And the very next thing out of the father's mouth, after he says, my boy is home, the very next thing out of the father's mouth is, hey, servants, go get my son a new robe and new sandals. He needs them, right? And this, he, he recognizes the boy's clothes are soiled and they need to be replaced. But here's what happens is, Obviously, and although the story doesn't say it, he first needs to remove the old clothes and to take a bath before he puts on the new robe and the new sandals. Otherwise, that new robe just goes right over the filthiness of the old and it does no good. It gets soiled in the process. Does this make sense? All right? Okay, so in the same way, before we can put on the new self of being like Christ and being his representative, we first need to take off the old which makes sense intellectually. But that's way easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, how do we put off the old to put on? In a lot of ways, this can sound a whole lot like moralism. I just got to try harder, just do more, beat my flesh into submission. But for any of us who have tried to, to walk that road, it is an exhausting existence. And ultimately, it also is futile. We cannot by our own strength overcome our flesh's yearnings and our natural propensity to do things that ultimately hurt us and hurt others. And so how do we put on or put off and then put on? Well, I want, I want, to, I want to draw your attention back to scripture for a second because look at verse 22. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupt in its deceitful desire. So that's what we need to put off. And then in verse 24, he says, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. But notice that verse 23 is sandwiched right in between there. And it might be one of those verses that we would often overlook, but I want us to draw our attention to it for a moment. It says in verse 23, we need to be made new in the attitude of our minds. So between the putting off and the putting on, there's this process of being renewed or being made new in the attitude of our minds. How does this work? Let's go back to an addict for just a moment because it gives us a salient kind of foundation in, in, in how the world works. Any addict will tell you in the 12-step process, what's step number one? Admit that we have a problem. And step number two, Admit that there's nothing I can do to overcome it by my own strength, right? Am I, am I correct in that? We need to recognize, A, I got a problem, and B, I'm powerless to do this, so I need help. And that's the first step towards freedom, is to recognize I by myself am overwhelmed and I need help. Now let's go back to this. The renewal in the attitude of our minds is a recognition of a couple of things. Number one, it's a recognition of who we are. I am a son. I am a daughter of God. I've been adopted into his family because he loves me. It's not, nothing I did to earn it, but he loves me enough that he chose to adopt me. <sighs> I'm secure. That's the foundation. That's something we need to keep in mind in this whole conversation. 
That's why Paul spends three chapters pounding that truth home. But the second thing that we need to recognize is that we still have a, a, a flesh that yearns for things that are contrary to what our Father would want for us. Things that are damaging to us, but things that we have found life in in the past. Things that we have gone to to find our security, to find our identity, to find our our inclusivity. I don't think I'm using that word correctly right now. To find the, the, ways, the things we've gone to to be accepted. I will, I will binge because I need the food, but I'm also going to purge it because I need to look a certain way so that people will accept me. I'm going to dress a certain way so that they will accept me. I'm going to talk a certain way around them so they will accept me. I'm going to try to accumulate things so that they will accept. I'm going to try to climb this ladder so that my parents, my dad in particular, will accept me. And when that doesn't work, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this drug of choice to numb out this feeling of worthlessness. And Paul says, between the putting off and recognizing that's not who I am anymore, I'm a child of God, we need to be renewed in the attitude of our minds and recognize I'm a child of God, but I need help to put on this new self. One more point in this before we move on. And that is that this is not a one-time decision. Any addict knows you don't just one time say, I'm an addict and I need help because I can't do this by myself. No, that is a decision you need to make moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. You make it over and over and over again, acknowledging the problem so that you can begin to address the problem with God's help. And in the same way, we don't just acknowledge, I am a child of God, but I need help one time. We do it moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. And as we are renewed in the thinking of our minds, as we rest in who we are in Christ, children of God adopted out of his love, and as we bring the stuff that percolates to the surface, the stuff we know that's contrary to our Father's heart, then we begin to be able to put on the new self and to live out of our new identity as sons and daughters of God. It's making a little bit of sense. We're going to move on now to the second half of this section, verse 25 and forward. But before I read this, because what we're about to read is a whole bunch of illustrations of what this looks like. He, he, you almost want to look at verse 23 through 24 as the thesis for the rest of the next couple of chapters. And then the rest of what's going to come over the next couple of chapters are Paul's way of illustrating what this putting off, being renewed so that we can put on the new self actually looks like in reality. So he starts, it's almost like a grab bag of, uh, of examples. He begins with the words that we say and, and telling the truth. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. In other words, we are created to be in relationship with one another. But lying to one another actually begins to tear at the fabric of relationship because if people can't trust your words, then they can't trust you and they're not going to trust to move near you. They're going to hold you at arm's length. And if we are created to be one body together, doing life, holding one another up, then tell the stinking truth, okay? Is that so difficult? He goes on. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, 
Notice this. This is important. He acknowledges that we will feel angry, that there will be moments where we are angry about what we see the world as being. And anger is not called sinful. Even Jesus was angry. Remember when he went into the temple and and upturned the the money changers' tables and and drove out all the people who were selling uh, animals for sacrifice and taking advantage of people who were coming to worship? He says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. So even Jesus was angry, and yet we know that Jesus was was without sin. So it is not sinful to be angry, and we live in a broken world. And there are going to be moments when what we believe is just and should happen and what actually happens will not match. And in those moments, we will feel frustrated and angry. And there's such a thing as righteous anger. Things where God is angry. I mean, you think about a child who's taken advantage of. A young girl who's sold into the sex trade because she's powerless to fight against people who are taking advantage or somebody who takes advantage because of their position of power over somebody who does not have power. That is unjust and that makes our father angry and it should make us angry as well. But we're also human. We're also uh, fallible, which means that there are going to be things that make us angry that are not due to righteous anger. It's more out of we're inconvenienced or we're irritated, or we have expectations that are unmet. The person that we voted for didn't get elected. I have to pay 12 cents a a, a gallon gas, you know, tax, because it didn't get overturned, or whatever it happens to be. or, Or maybe it's you get cut off on the freeway, and that makes you mad, or somebody cuts in front of you, and they make it through the light, but you have to wait an extra two minutes for the light to change. And that makes you mad. And you, you want to wave to them with one finger. You pick, right? Because they're number one and they need to know it. And there are going to be things that make us angry, not because of righteous anger, but as more of our human nature. And Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. You need to lay those things down. And he goes on. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. I don't know about you, but I'm hoping, and I don't believe that Paul is saying here, that before you fall asleep at night, if you and your sweetie are having a disagreement, you must come to an agreement and must be on the same page before you can go to bed. If that's the case, as for me and my wife, we're in trouble. Because it seems the later it gets, the less capable of rational thought we are and the more we start bickering and fighting and getting heated over we don't even remember what maybe i'm the only one but by about 10 o'clock we know we probably need to to table this because if we continue to fight it's going to get ugly and we're not even going to know why it's getting ugly so it's not saying that we must come to an agreement and figure everything out before we fall asleep but here's what he is saying anger is caustic to relationship. Anger eats away at relationship. And when we become angry at somebody and we hold on to that anger, it's like holding on to acid, wanting to throw it in the face of somebody else. All the while, what's it doing to our hands? It's burning us. 
eating away at us. Now imagine that that anger is residing in your hearts. You're holding on to it towards another person. You go to sleep with that anger still in your heart and you wake up the next morning and that anger has been eating away at your heart all night long. And it's creating cankers, ulcers in your heart, which has not only deadened your ability to recognize the damage it's doing between you and your sweetie, but it's creating a space where the enemy can come in and make a foothold to begin to continue to come at you in your relationship, whether it be with your spouse, your children, your parents, your boss, a friend. Anger is damaging. We could spend an entire day just talking about that one verse, but let me just give you the best piece of advice that I have found in my own marriage. It's not the easiest piece of advice, certainly, but it's the best one. When Kat and I come to a moment where it's getting late and we're at an impasse and we we just don't see eye to eye and it's getting heated and we know if we keep going, it's going to be carnage. And we have to table our conversation. I have recognized that the best way to lay down my anger in the midst of still being in disagreement is to pray with my wife. Because when you pray with somebody, it's really hard to stay mad while at the same time coming into a posture of submission to God. In a lot of ways, you have to lay that down in order to move towards God with that person or even if they're not there. Maybe your anger is towards a parent or a coworker or a friend. Even if they're not there, if you find yourself grinding in anger towards them, use that as a prompting to pray. Now, I say it's the best piece because in a lot of ways, it's like taking the cap off the pressure cooker. It lets all that steam go as you bring it to God. It's the best way, but it's certainly not the easiest. And I will be the first to say, when it comes to me and my wife being in a fight, the last thing I ever want to do is pray with her. It almost feels like spiritual warfare. I know the right, I know I need to say, hey, can we just pray? I know that that will break the dam that is the wall that's been built between us. I know it's effective, but it is so unbelievably difficult to utter those words. Can we pray? And it almost feels like we have an enemy who's saying, don't go there. You don't want to go there. You have a right to be right. You have a right to feel angry. And I would just encourage you Men, women, children, parents, co-workers, bosses, employees. Take that step to pray because it is probably the most powerful way to deal with our anger while at the same time not necessarily being on the same page. All right? I'm going to keep moving. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Every example Paul gives is relational. It's all about our relationship with one another. And here's what I want us to point out. I want to point out to you. This putting on our new self and becoming more Christ-like is not something that takes place solely within the sanctity of our prayer closets all by ourselves, alone with the Bible and God. These things of being more Christ-like is actually worked out in a relational sphere in the messiness of real life. 
That life on life, that iron that sharpens iron, yeah, it creates sparks, and we don't do it perfectly, but that, more often than not, is where we are shaped. That, that quiet time is the time that prepares our heart to enter into it, but it's really in relationship that we are shaped in Christ's image. I just want us to notice that. He says, don't steal any longer. Don't be the kind of person within the social sphere that takes from people, because that's very selfish. You're only thinking about yourself, and you take from others that breaks relationship. Instead, be the kind of person who works to provide for yourself. And in fact, works hard enough that you're able to provide for others and bless them. Now, is there a time for us to be supported by others? You better believe it. And if you're one of those people that only wants to serve others, you never want to have people serve you, you are stealing from others the opportunity to bless you in the same way that it can be a blessing to serve them. But what Paul is saying here is don't be the kind of person that just takes Be the kind of person that recognizes that you have been blessed to be a blessing to others. So work hard enough not only to provide for yourself, but to be able to care for others' needs in your community. Verse 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Paul understands that our tongues have the power of life and death in them. And with our tongues, we can build people up and we can tear people down. Oh, it's just sarcasm. I'm just joking. Well, as my buddy Jeff always points out to me, because I was raised in a family where sarcasm was our love language. And he goes, listen, every time you're sarcastic, every joke, every little bit of sarcasm, there's an element of truth in it. And it draws attention to what people might consider to be deficiencies. Is it loving? Does it build that person up? Or does it tear them down? And, and, and by the way, this isn't just the words that we speak with our tongues. It's also the words that we type on social media, on the internet, even if it's anonymous, especially if it's anonymous, because the world will operate from a different standpoint. The world will say, you can say anything you want, so long as you think it's right, so long as you think it's truthful, you have the right to fight hard and to be mean and tear people down because you need to make sure that they get it. And I'm saying, not so with you. Jesus modeled for us, bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek when they strike you. Pray for those who persecute you, which is why I pray for the gunman and his family who have been affected by this tragedy just as much, if not more so. Better believe they're walking through some some painful things. Pray for those who stand in opposition to you. Pray for... if, If there's a politician in office that you didn't vote for, then pray for him or her. That's who we are... That's what we are called to do as sons and daughters of God. And if you're next-door neighbor is rude to you. Pray for them. Don't hold on to anger and aggression towards them. Pray for them. That is what it means to be Christ-like. And don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And then finally, and I'm going to wrap up what I'm saying this morning uh, with verse 30. Because this really is as much as verse 23 through 24 is the thesis of what Paul is saying. Verse 30 encompasses all of it. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What on earth does that mean? How do we 
grieve the Holy Spirit, and how can we avoid doing it? In order to answer that question, let me just remind you of why we have the Holy Spirit to begin with. When we give our hearts to God, God gives us his Holy Spirit as a stamp of ownership, saying, this one's mine. If you read Romans chapter 8, you, you actually realize that Paul articulates the getting of the Holy Spirit is the way that God adopts us into his family. It is like our birthright. He says, now you belong to me. No one else can ever claim you. You're mine. So the Holy Spirit has given us as a stamp of God's ownership, but it's also his way of enabling us, empowering us to begin to become more like him, to put off our old self, to be renewed in our thinking so that we can put on the new self and become more Christ-like, to become a representative of our Father. It's the Holy Spirit that is that still, quiet voice that says, hey, you don't want to walk down that way. Down that way is only death, destruction, and, 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 and pain for you and for the people you love the most. So don't keep walking that way. Instead, walk this way. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. He is that moral compass that helps guide us. But keep this in mind. <clears throat> Although we may have God's Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within us, we still have a flesh that wants to rebel and, and, and thinks that we know better than God. And that flesh is stinking resilient. It doesn't like to die. And so how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? We grieve the Holy Spirit when we disregard his still small voice saying, don't give in to that. Go this way. And instead we give in to that and we choose to follow our own impulses. That grieves him because he recognizes that it's not only hurting us, it's hurting others around us. And it's, it's damaging our relationship with God. And if we do it long enough, the calluses in our hearts will begin to be built up to the point where we can no longer even hear his voice. He doesn't speak to me. Well, he has been speaking. You just haven't been listening. If we walk long enough in that, we find ourselves in this downward spiral into depravity and we don't know how to get out. Thankfully, God loves us even in the midst of that and he pursues us even in the midst of that. But here's the question this morning. I'm gonna invite Pete to come back forward and we're gonna, we're gonna respond. But here's my question to you. If you, are a, if you have given your heart to Jesus, then you already have the Holy Spirit. He's already given you his spirit. My question to you this morning is do you choose to follow the spirit's lead? Do you choose to embrace Jesus not only as your savior, but as your Lord? Far too often within the church, we place an emphasis on praying a prayer. Pray this prayer and then you're good to go. You stamp your ticket, you're good. And then we go back to living the same way that we did. We basically say, I'm a child of God, but I'm going to keep my old robes on. I'm going to keep following the same footsteps, the same well-trod path that I have walked the rest of my life. I'm going to continue to be the captain of my own ship. My question to you this morning is, do you choose to follow him? And, and remember, 
through the renewing of our mind, this is a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, day-by-day decision. It's not a one-time decision. It is an ongoing decision. Do you choose to follow him now? And in a few minutes, when you walk out of here, do you choose to follow him then? And every choice you have, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to guide it or are you allowing your flesh to guide it? That will make all the determination on what your path ahead looks like. Father God, we pray that you would give us the ability to hear your voice. You are aware of the calluses that we have already allowed to be built up in our hearts around certain things that we go to for life without even realizing that they are creating death. You're aware of the anger that we hold on to and our tendencies to lie, to preserve, and to protect ourselves. You're aware of the ways we've been taking. You're aware of the anger that's just been eating away at our hearts that we've been harboring towards others. This morning, Father God, I pray that you would strip away the calluses, that you would unstop our ears and give us the ability to hear your spirit's quiet, loving voice. Father, this morning there are some of us who who just feel like there's no way you would ever want to talk to us. There's no way you would ever want to choose us as your son or daughter because we're so... We live so contrary to you, and yet you love us more than we could possibly fathom. You have pursued us, and you've shown us the depth of your love by sending Jesus to die in our place so that we could be restored back to relationship with you. Father God, thank you for accepting us into your family. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for entering into our hearts to begin this long process of shaping us to reflect the heart of our Father. Would you help us? Would you give us the ears to hear your voice and the courage to lay down our right to be the captains of our own ship and to follow you every step, every moment of every day? Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey, we're going to take a few more minutes to, to respond in worship. In just a moment, the ushers are going to come forward. If you're visiting us, please don't feel the need to give anything. But we would love to know that you're here. So I would ask that you would just fill out the connection card and drop it in, and that be your offering today. But let's respond now to a Father who loves us deeper and more desperately than we could ever possibly fathom.
Hey, I want to remind you that we have a lunch across the street that some of the, the people in our church have put together. So I want to encourage you to head across the street to the family room where we can be family. And also, if you're visiting today, we just want to say thank you. And on the front table, uh, there is a gift that we want to give you. So go ahead and grab one of those bags or you can grab one of the books that are there. We have a couple of different options for you. And then finally... If you are looking for a way that you can serve this holiday season, on the back table out in the foyer is Bill Nelson. There's a bunch of ways with Fresh Beginnings Ministries that you can give back to those in need during the holiday season. So go check that out. Love you, and we'll see you across the street. Have a great week.